You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for being part of today's virtual conversation on people power in a pandemic, how movements are confronting COVID-19. My name is Maria Steffen, and I direct the program on nonviolent action at the US Institute of Peace, which is today headquartered in my apartment. I'll be facilitating the discussion with a terrific group of panelists and with you all tuning in from around the world. And for those who are tweeting, we are using the hashtag PeoplePowerForPeace. PeoplePower number four, peace. So as we edge closer to 5 million global deaths caused by the COVID-19 virus, we've seen the terrible toll the pandemic is taking on families and communities around the world. At the same time, we've witnessed a resurgence of new forms of civic activism and creative citizen-led organizing in response to the crisis. Mutual aid networks have sprouted up in countries around the world, including Algeria and Lebanon, where activists are delivering food and medicine and sanitizing public spaces. In Chile, women launched a feminist emergency plan centered around mutual support against gender-based violence. Polish activists have organized socially distanced public protests and drive-by demonstrations to challenge government policies. Activists from around the world have increasingly turned to digital platforms and tools to educate the public about the pandemic and to organize campaigns. At the same time, we've seen governments expand and abuse their power in the name of fighting the pandemic, including in Hungary and Hong Kong, where there have been further crackdowns on opposition and dissent. Disinformation and hate speech related to COVID abound on social media. The pandemic has raised a fundamental question for activists and movements, namely, how can they address immediate public health concerns while challenging abuses of power and while addressing the inequalities and injustices that this pandemic has both highlighted and exacerbated? In other words, how do you link crisis response to systems change? With us to shed light on how activists and movements are responding and adapting to COVID, how they are planning for the future, and how donors and international organizations can best support the grassroots during this time. We are delighted to be joined by three remarkable activists from South Sudan, Syria, and Venezuela, along with representatives of the donor community and international civil society. So let me offer the, some brief uh, introductions. First, Nelson Kowaje is the Director of Global Programs for Defy Hate Now in Africa where he leads training programs on fact-checking and hate speech, hate speech and misinformation uh, mitigation work in multiple countries. Nelson also supports the development of internet and citizens' rights through platforms, including the Network of African Youth for Development and Internet Society. Raja Altali is the co-founder and co-director of the Center for Civil Society and Democracy 
a Syrian NGO that focuses on civil society development. Raja has documented human rights abuses, trained countless civil society activists, and conducted research on women activists and unarmed resistance in Syria. And she's now one of 12 Syrian women appointed by the UN Office of the Special Envoy to the Women's Advisory Board of the Geneva Peace Process. Alba Poroy is a Venezuelan social activist and peace builder with experience in community organizing and citizen training. She has conducted workshops and trainings in nonviolent action and peace building in different cities throughout Venezuela, her home country, and across Latin America. Michael Silberman is the Global Director of Mobilization Lab, an organization that trains, coaches, and challenges changemakers and their organizations to build people power, deploy creative tactics, tackle root causes, and adopt collaborative cultures. Michael has more than a decade of experience guiding social change organizations to achieve greater impact through the creative use of participatory strategies and technologies. And finally, Catherine Zavala is the Director of Grassroots Partnerships at Thousand Currents, which funds and partners with grassroots groups and movements led by women, youth, and indigenous peoples in the global south that are transforming their communities. In her role, Catherine supports her team to model long-term engagement and commitment to whole ecosystems of grassroots actors working towards collective self-determination and social transformation. So I'm going to kick off the conversation with our esteemed panelists momentarily, but I first wanted to encourage folks tuning in from around the world to send in their questions at any point during the discussion. So all you have to do is type your questions in the YouTube chat box and hit send. You can also tweet your questions on Twitter using the hashtag peoplepowerforpeace. So with that, let me start by asking our panelists this uh, kind of central question, which is how has the pandemic changed your activism and movement building work? In particular, how has it influenced the strategies and tactics that you are using? So we're gonna start with Nelson Kowajik. Up, oh, Nelson, just hit yourself off mute. Okay, hi everyone. Um, uh, thanks, Mary, for the introduction. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to start by probably stating some of the challenges that we're seeing and then what are the tactics. So with respect to the pandemic globally, we have seen it had an impact on every facet of our lives and on every level of government, civil society, um, and also private sector. Uh, but let me talk about like in terms of organizing and the violations and the injustices that we have been seeing around. Um, how are they affecting people here in East Africa, for example? So um, I stay in Kenya, but I also I do a lot of work in South Sudan and in, in, in other countries in the region. And we have seen during this pandemic, um, a lot of the central issues are still existing. We have issues of injustices, we have issues of human rights violation and this. But like with the pandemic, there are very specific things that are rising up. Like for example, in Kenya right now, the government is demolishing a lot of houses uh, that are not planned. Um, and during the pandemic, we've seen also activists are coming to raise their voices uh, around that. In Uganda, yesterday, uh, Stella Nyanzi, who's a, a leading activist, she was also um, arrested because she led a march um, for the rights of people to access food items and stuff like that. 
Um, in South Sudan, uh, we are also seeing a lot of mobilizations around account accountability, but also we're seeing mobilization like the women march against uh, a rape that happened the day before yesterday. And that was in part, uh, I mean, like a few days ago, and that was in part necessitated by um, uh, uh, a rape of a young girl. So around the region, we're still seeing activists organizing um, against issues that are happening around. Um, how has this changed because of uh, COVID-19? In many ways, we, for example, we are seeing manifestation of um, overstretch of executive power. Uh, the police are now at the forefront of everything and uh, implementing uh, the lockdown rules at times in ways that infringes on people's human rights. Um, what are the activists doing about this? We're seeing a lot of digital organizing. So people are having uh, uh, chat rooms, people are having uh, campaigns, hashtags and all this. Um, these hashtags are related to, some of it related to violations of rights, but also a lot of it relates to accountability and also um, issues to do with, with accountability and holding governments accountable. In Kenya, for example, we had a hashtag trending saying 40 billion because the Kenyan government allegedly spent about or, or allocated 40, 40 billion Kenyan shillings uh, in a span of like a month. And the citizens kind of um, raised their voice against that. So the issues that are being discussed right now are still continuing, but also we are seeing new uh, things coming forward. One of the things that are not being brought up uh, clearly, which people need to think about, is what are the long-term implications for this? Like in Ethiopia, we already seen that the elections has been postponed. Um, Uganda is supposed to have elections next year. Um, and all, there's already also discussions around that election being postponed. Um, to what extent is that being done uh, because of COVID-19? And to what extent is uh, such actions being taken to, in one way or another, hijack power or for people who are in authority to overstay their term? Uh, and these are issues sometimes um, it stretch beyond the constitutional mandate and the laws that are being set in place because a lot of these laws and a lot of these structural systems have been put in place uh, with no foresight about pandemic or a total lockdown of systems. So activists are also thinking around ways to find, um, to find means of addressing issues that have long-term impact on democracy, on, on civil rights, and also on the right to freedom of expression and so many other rights. And this continues to be the biggest challenge right now. Like what is the long-term effect of these rules on people's lives and also the livelihood of citizens in the region? I'll stop here. Great, thanks so much, uh, Nelson. You really get at um, how activists are already thinking of connecting kind of the pandemic-related issues, abuses of power to longer-term um, systems change, which is very interesting. So now I'm going to ask uh, Raja Altali to um, speak about what Syrian activists and movements um, are doing in the COVID period. Thank you so much, Maria, for the introduction and for giving the space for um, my and other activists around the world in order to um, talk about how people power are changing during COVID-19 and beyond. So um, 2011, March 2011, the Syrian revolution started when Syrian people took up the street to say, we want change, political change is necessary and democracy is a right for the Syrian people, freedom, justice, coexistence and dignity is our right and we demand them. In March 2019, uh, March 2020, when COVID-19 started 
to hit mm, hard the region, mm, not only in Syria, but like in the neighboring country, people started asking about the numbers, like talking about like, is the information that we are having mm, is accurate? Mm, uh, the numbers of people who are recorded as tested positive for COVID-19, is this is the number, why the responses for the COVID-19 is very uh, limited and not shared properly between the Syrian people. So while mm, uh, there has been changes between 2011 and also 2020, the movement, the Syrian movement during the last uh, uh, five, six years, has been focusing a lot on the political process, especially since December 2015, when the Security Council Resolution 2254 was uh, adopted, which is mainly focused on uh, the ceasefire, uh, like nationwide ceasefire, but also on transitioning governing body, we are able to adopt a new constitution, adopt a new uh, uh, election uh, model, moving towards change in the political uh, system. And But since then, even though we saw a lot of online work between Syrians um, activists and the Syrian movement, mainly because the uh, Syria was in, uh, Syrian people in all the country uh, were not able to reach each other and being in the same room since 2016, actually, in, uh, unless if we are using online tools. And this is remind us again with COVID-19 that like all the expertise that Syrian activists and Syrian people have uh, used since then in mobilizing online tools could be a uh, uh, used here, but it's the first time that even mobilizing on the ground, it is happening online as well. Like before, like you have the local community, so this is mainly the changes that is happening. Like before you have the local community and for confidence building measures, but also for making sure that like you are able to do more peace building on the ground, but also mobilizing for human rights and mobilizing for change, you do, and for security, you do a lot of face-to-face meetings. While with COVID-19, we changed completely 100% to an online tool, which is challenging, but in the same time, using the experience that we had, it was very essential and useful for the movement. Maybe I want to mention like four points before like moving that, like it was a key pillars during the last two months or like during COVID-19 time that like the Syrian movement have been really focusing on. Like, uh, Focusing on national ceasefire have been many calls, especially like Center for Civil Society and Democracy has been calling for national ceasefire and to be implemented on all of Syria. Also calling on three main vulnerable people 
The first one is detainees and kidnapped people. And especially with COVID-19, we felt that the world are actually feeling more towards the Syrian detainees who have been like disappeared since nine years, actually, some of them, some of them five and six years in the most notorious detention center, maybe in the world. And uh, now like people are feeling with uh, uh, with their family who are like seeking information on where they are. And also they are more worried about like the situation of the detention centers with COVID-19 in place. But so the detention center has been a big movement towards it in the Syria context, but also the IDP communities and refugee community. So those are the two other points. And maybe I like when some of the IDPs are saying you are uh, nagging or um, not happy about talking about social distancing, while we are in a position that for us, social distancing is a dream. This is give us actually even like more inspiration and more focus towards like, what can we do more for the the Syrian IDPs and also for the Syrian refugee? Thank you. Wow, thanks so much, uh, Raja. That's poignant, the whole idea of social distancing as a dream um, for IDPs and, and refugees. Um, so we're now going to turn to Alba Peroy, who will talk about what's been happening in, in Venezuela. Hey. Okay. Hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, first, I want to thanks to Maria and to the uh, United States Institute of Peace for this invitation. I really feel privileged to be here with all of these panelists, my colleagues from Syria and from South Sudan. Thanks for this time. So I, I want to start to uh, saying that uh, COVID-19 arrived to Venezuela at, in the right moment that people were on the streets. It definitely changed all our path about uh, how to behave um, uh, the people uh, uh, under this system. So um, I, I all, of course, for an authoritarian regime, which is the, the government we have now, it was the right moment to, to put the people uh, in a lockdown. That's why they call for an early lockdown. And, of, on, and also the, the sanitarian authority alert about the situation. So it had a positive response of the population in terms of, of the epidemic control. Uh, but nevertheless, there were several variables underground. For example, I, I must say, one third of the population is on, on food on security, and 80% of population doesn't have enough income to buy food for a week, for example. Uh, they, they need to live day by day. If they don't work, they can buy food. This is something which really um, is a challenge for 80% of the population. Personally, I would I would like to say that um, in my mind, I, I I said, well, what can I do in this at this moment, which people is perhaps uh, stuck. And I said uh, I had a survey, a small survey uh, between our movement and on another movement around another actives to ask what people really want to do at that moment. It was around two months ago. Keep them isolated without any action. 
and prioritization they have conditioned, or looking for creative ways to keep the eye on the national crisis, protesting and maintaining a resilient environment, even under repression. So that was the that was the, the our question inside. You know? So people surprisingly uh, they they didn't give up. They want to keep fighting for restore democracy under sanitary compliance, which it was really not an easy, um, an easy uh, state of this. Now, so people were in the dilemma between how to balance the health, safety, and the possibility of enable their livelihood. On the other hand, this situation is right transforming because uh, I'm talking since two months ago and now the of lockdown two, after two months of lockdown it has sensibly changed people started to go out freely not because it's allowed or not because the virus is under control it is because they needed to go out even more at this time so the presence of pandemic in Venezuela I think made more visible our current problems. People lock, become more aware what is really failing in terms of public services, for example. Um, being quietly at home has been the chance to realize all the deficiencies together. So uh, the abuses of human rights has been more visible because some particular professional like journalists, doctors or nurses have been arrested. This is something has been uh, clear for, for many people and outside the, our country. For example, for simple actions like tweet information about lack of health supplies for medical assistance. And now the gap between political leaders and grassroots communities is widening right now. So from my point of view, this is a huge opportunity for social movement and social people about their rights claims. I think we are in a position where people is still, um, I mean, locked and paralyzed and they want to do something, but they don't know how to do it. Uh, we have been working uh, around the digital um, um, actions, but I think we, need to, uh, we still need to, to, to learn more about this. So the focus, for social activists, from my point of view, must be how to engage people in coronavirus era. I mean, how to attract and commit people and how to increase awareness. I think this is a time to, to increase awareness of people. I will say something like, look at, but no frozen. I mean, still working on it, okay? Thank you. Great, thanks, Alba, for sharing what's been happening on the, the ground um, and your point about how the, the pandemic is just making more visible some of the um, structural issues, issues involving public services and the like um, is very, very interesting. So now we're going to turn to hear from more of an, of an external actor perspective, um, uh, starting with Catherine Zavala, who has a lot of experience working with uh, grassroots actors and movements. So Catherine, what, what are you seeing in terms of how your, how your work and activities have responded in, in response to the pandemic? Thank you, Maria. And I also wanna express my gratitude for being on this panel and sharing it with my fellow peers here. 
Um, so I just wanted to briefly explain um, more about Thousand Currents. We're a 35-year-old public foundation supporting grassroots groups and social movements in the global south, specifically in the regions of Africa, Asia and Pacific, and Latin America. And we do this mainly with providing long-term flexible funding. Our main focuses have been supporting the intersections between food sovereignty, climate justice, and alternative economies. In addition to our global grant making work, we also have a second strategy on philanthropic advocacy, trying to influence the sector to have better practices uh, in their grant making work. For Thousand Currents, whenever an emergency crisis comes up that impacts our partners, we understand more than ever that this is a time for us to be nimble, adaptive, and extend ourselves as a funder. It's a reminder too to prioritize supporting grassroots groups and social movements because they do tend to be the least resource when it comes to emergency responses. As we started to see the COVID-19 emerge as a global crisis, we started to understand that it would be an unprecedented type of crisis, which is going to impact all of our, all of the grassroots groups and social movements we support. And it would mean that our response had to be unprecedented as well. So we became prepared to be more expansive in our grant making and be more open to new ways of supporting our grassroots partners. So here are a few things that we prioritize when, um, when we saw COVID-19 hitting at the global scale. First was our communications with the grassroots group and social movements we support. We wanted to send a clear message around that there were gonna be no changes in our grant making for the remainder of our fiscal year. A reminder that our grants are flexible, which means they, they're unrestricted and they can use it for any of the readjustments and shifts that they have had to do because of COVID-19. Um, and that we were committed to building an emergency response plan. We also wanted to send a solidarity message saying that we were with them, that we were gonna be following closely what was happening in their context, open to hearing what was, um, how the impact was, was um, happening in their areas and the ways their communities were responding. The other thing that we also implemented right away were a few grant making practices. So we committed to send an initial emergency grant even though there was a lot of uncertainties two months ago around how the impact was gonna reach the global south, but we knew it was gonna happen. So we just immediately started sending those initial emergency grants. We also accelerate all the grants that remain to be sent so that folks could have money right away as soon as possible. And we also offered extensions to report deadlines. The third thing we did was we created what we have, the Above and Beyond Solidarity Fund, which was to raise the money for us to send the initial emergency grants. And as we started to learn that COVID-19 was going to be with us for at least the next 12 to 18 months, we knew that our emergency response had to follow those same timelines. And we knew that, and we also know now that we're going to expect an economic downturn that will impact all of our grassroots partners and that our partners will be shifting from crisis mode to long-term recovery and resiliency plans. So once we successfully did raise the initial goal of the above and beyond solidarity fund, we decided to extend and raise our fundraising goal to 5 million for the next two years to increase resources to our grassroots partners. And the final thing that I will, sh that I will share um, related to our philanthropic advocacy work is that we also made an intention of sharing our learnings with the philanthropic sector about what is happening in the global south, as well as sharing what are the key practices to take on in this moment. And one of the ways we did that was by doing a webinar last month where we share what was happening in each of the regions we work with, the impact of COVID-19 thus far, 
and what were several of the Global South responses to COVID-19 that our partners were developing. The final thing I will, I will share is that the pandemic has shown us that we cannot disconnect our emergency response with long-term strategies. So our grassroots partners have already been building pathways towards a well-being, just and solidary based world, taking into account food, economy, and climate. And so that strategy has not shifted for us. We remain committed to supporting those pathways to, for social transformation. Great, Catherine, thanks so much. And it's very interesting to hear how philanthropic organizations are applying a move, more of a movement mindset to uh, support grassroots organizations and movements during this period, so thank you. And last but not least, uh, Michael Silverman, you uh, have extensive experience working with larger social change organizations. Um, so what are you seeing these organizations perhaps doing differently in, in light of COVID? Yeah, thanks. And thanks as well for putting this together. It's such an interesting conversation to be having right now. Um, yeah, I, our time has is mostly spent with these some of these more formal civil society actors. And I think they are all going through some form of reckoning. And it's maybe it's not too much different from how a lot of individuals are experiencing this crisis. Obviously, it's hitting everyone differently. Um, but uh, you know, many people, just as many people have been taking this time to reconsider what's most important to them. These larger organizations are having a similar reflection, uh, which I think is very exciting. Uh, and I find, uh, I see as a huge opportunity for shifts in, in the civil society and in the whole, the whole ecosystem here. Um, the, I had one, one call recently with a, a large international child rights groups that was saying, you know, we've been uh, quibbling about which, which advocacy campaign to run these different things, but now, now it's clear, um, you know, we need to figure out how we really center children in all of our planning, the, you know, the children we aim to serve, the children who are most impacted in different one area or another, we need to, you know, we're, we're now ready. We've been talking about this on the sidelines, on the fringes, but now this is the moment, everything is different. Everything has changed. And, so I think these larger groups are looking externally and realizing, just as we've been talking about here, yeah, politics, the political landscape is, is shifting. The economy, as you know, Catherine, you just mentioned, is, is totally different. Um, societies are starting to shift in terms of how we collaborate, work together with all the mutual aid you started mentioning, Maria. And so therefore, it's now having an internal effect on how these larger groups operate because they're taking pause and saying, how do we be effective, how do we still meet our mission in this new world? And um, the, I guess specifically the part that's most interesting or I think important to note is that you know, one of the realities is that the so many of these international groups that work, that deliver their results through, through partners, through local partners ultimately are you know, there's a lot of practical considerations where they obviously, you know, many, they can't get to those partners, right? If they were gonna travel there previously. Um, and it's more clear than ever that those partners are on the front lines of solving this crisis of being the, you know, in addition to healthcare workers, the, the most essential part of our collective global response. And so, um, yeah, local groups, community groups, community, but grassroots efforts, um, you know, there, we're continuing to see more and more evidence of these, the, these groups being the 
you know, not only the most essential, but also the most under-resourced, again, as Catherine laid out. So um, my, the, the opportunity here and like the conversation I'm seeing starting to happen, which is very, I think very exciting is, is kind of a re, it, it's shaking up the, there, there was a shift the power conversation that I think, you know, many here are familiar with where, you know, where these larger international global groups were thinking about localization and um, ensuring that people whose lives are most impacted are at the center of decision-making or at the center of solutions are, are co-designing, co-creating those solutions or, or, or driving those, all of that work. And, you know, there, frankly, there was, that was also lip service in many, you know, in, for many organizations, it wasn't internalized fully, or it's been a, a long journey. And I think that journey is now getting accelerated or that conversation is being recast in a way that these international NGOs or more formal parts of civil society are reconsidering this question of, of how do they how do they truly trust the people they're they're, they're working with or for and uh, and put them at the center. Great, thank you very much, Michael. Um, I mean, if the pandemic can result in shifting the power when it comes to uh, donor partner relations, that already would be a um, marvelous development, I, I would say. Um, so um, just to remind folks, uh, please, if you have questions for any of the panelists, uh, feel free to type those into the chat box and send them. Um, we do have a question, which I will um, direct to all of the panelists, which um, kind of gets back to a point that a number of them were raising about this issue of governments and other um, non-state actors abusing their powers in the name of fighting the pandemic. So the specific question um, is, how do activists balance holding governments accountable uh, to taking COVID seriously while at the same time protecting and defending civic space? So maybe we can start back with Nelson, who was touching on this point in his earlier remarks. Um, what does it mean in this context to protect and defend uh, civic space? Uh, thanks for the question, uh, Marie. Um, it, it, it's defending civic space is now even more prominent than before. Um, one of the challenges that especially being faced um, right now is the pandemic is um, like especially uh, civil society organizations and, um, and activists, we also have limited resources and we have limited time span. Um, so there is a lot of prioritization being put in place right now um, in order to address the issues that are urgent and also work with groups that need the most help right now. What that might do is that like a lot of key issues or things that have already started before might drop from the agenda or might be less prioritized. Um, and that is, an, and that, is a, that is just a problem of time and, uh, and the physical space that we're in right now. We cannot be in all the places. Individuals by themselves, uh, they want to protect their families. They want to protect themselves. Um, people's um, uh, 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 livelihood is at, at risk here. So even we have a lot of people being uh, laid off and stuff like that. So what happens is that you find that there are so many things that are competing for attention. And then as civil society actors, we need to prioritize the actions that we need to take right now. Um, like I'll just give the example of, for example, in South Sudan, 
there is an ongoing peace process. And activists have been advocating so much for, 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 for the implementation of all the protocols and all this. Uh, but as we speak right now, the Vice President of South Sudan has, is, um, is positive, has been, uh, has been diagnosed as positive with COVID-19. Uh, what might that mean, the peace process? We also have the same thing in Sudan. So I think this idea of um, attentions competing and lack of resources and lack of time is impacting a lot of the local aspects. That being said, we need to prioritize the issues and see what is the long-term impact that we have in place right now and what are the, the actions, especially that are being taken by governments and by other actors. How can we ensure that these actions do not have, because that is the issue, that's the thing with power. Once you give it away, it's not just like after the pandemic, you're like, okay, can you give us the power back as, a, as citizens? It's, it, it's, it doesn't work this way. So how do we ensure that like the current structures that are being put in place does not shrink the civic space so much and does not infringe into people's rights people's right in such a way that after the pandemic ends, it rolls us back a few years um, in all the progress that has been made. So this idea of the long-term, the strategic objectives and kind of the um, uh, getting power to the people should always be there. But also we need to work on the other track of like ensuring that the need, the current needs, issues to do with people's um, uh, employment, health, um, and also the right to have the government take care of them at this time, those are also addressed. So these two for me, what represents kind of the, 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 the current priorities for the civic space. Great, thanks Nelson. Um, Alba or Raja, this whole idea of um, once you give up power, it's hard to, to get it back. Um, how are either of you kind of um, thinking about, um, you know, engaging with security forces, other actors and kind of preventing an abuse of power that could have long-term consequences? Uh, Maria, for the question, I think it's very, very important, and uh, I, I believe CCSD has, has thought about this, like from the beginning when we said that we have a community responsibility to respond to COVID-19, and at that time we said that pillars of support for like the social movement to respond for COVID-19 is women, youth, and also society groups and media activists or journalists. But in the that we are mobilizing for better response and also uh, a response that is fair for all Syrian people and like to take COVID-19 as uh, opportunity for uh, changing the course, the discourse of Syria from being like one of the worst crises ever since like Second World War II until if we are able like to change the discourse to become like a good um, example of taking COVID-19 as opportunity to change the uh, situation to become like more better for the Syrian people. And at that time we said it's very important to work towards making sure that we are achieving a peace agreement is a necessity and also achieving sustainable peace is a condition in order to say that we are moving forward. 
And with that, we are talking about like also community stabilization as like a base when we are talking about like the response of COVID-19, including countering violent extremism, which also it could be like COVID-19 is used by different actors and exploited not only, so it could be armed group, it could be political group, it could be extremism, extremist, et cetera. And the third one is protection and the promotion of a human rights. And this is including women rights as well. It is very essential that we, we shouldn't be having excuses as actor, like power actors, that because we are responding to COVID-19, we have the rights to abuse more or like do human rights violation even more. And from the beginning, we put it as a base that those are the three main issues that we need like to focus on that should be the driver for us while we are having the pillars in order to have a better response for COVID-19. Great. Thanks, Raja. And we actually have a number of questions that have come in from our global audience. So we'll try to get through as many as we can. Um, so this is a really good question. Uh, when it comes to mobilizing, educating, and organizing movements, what are the practices or beliefs that have not changed with COVID-19? Um, and then the second part to the question was, have you seen any new government policies that are good? and which are responsive to the problems that people are facing. Uh, Alba, go ahead. Yes. Yes, thank you. Well, I think the, the, the main belief that, that we have as an activist uh, hasn't changed. Uh, I mean, the, the, our proper uh, belief are still there. I say um, the the thing is uh, people is really um, uh, frozen how to to go ahead in this in this situation, and I think is looking for new ways to to organize around this this pandemic situation. So, um, I, I, of course, I'm talking about Venezuela. It's my experience. It's what I'm, I'm living in. So. Uh, for example, here we look for some uh, kind of uh, go deeper in some kind of trainer about uh, peace building or about some specific uh, topics. Uh, as something somebody said before, go deeper about all civil rights or human rights in in our context. How to to produce uh, or to to increase awareness in our population. That's why I said I said before in my in my first uh, interview in my first uh, call, um, talk, um, I think this is the time to, to 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 go for the to increase the awareness of the of the population because people is in their homes and they they can uh, look better how the 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 violations and the and the and the the, um, the lack of of many public services is, is going on. So um, I think it's very, very important um, to take into account this time to go uh, to the, um, to, to, to discover new ways to connect with the people and to increase the awareness of the people. 
Great, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Alba. And Michael, I know that you had um, um, a response to that question as well, but let me combine it, your response with a question that actually just came in, if you don't mind, um, which is, as more communication organizing and mobilizing shift to digital platforms, how are activists protecting themselves from creeping authoritarianism in the digital space? I wish I had a good answer on the second one. Um, I think it's slowly is my is my answer and not enough. Um, I think there the, the 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 threats continue to mount and we continue, uh, you know, the exercise of balancing, trying to get the work done and trying to put all you know connect with people online and put our information online with balancing um, safety and security and ensuring we're not providing information to adversaries and authoritarian regime. It, it's it's a very it's an increasingly challenge challenging balance and moving target. And uh, I think it's just an added, the, the unfortunate part in my mind is just it's an added burden to all what's already challenging work to be doing. Um, so I'm, I, I, I hope people will have, I'm, I'm, there are many resources out there, hopefully um, some folks might share some in the, in the chat here. Um, I think what, ha and it, that is very much changing. I think what hasn't changed to the prior question uh, is, or at least two things. One, uh, the creativity needed in in organizing. Um, you know, for decades, activists and campaigners have been confronted with with challenges and shifting landscapes and unexpected obstacles. And in some ways, this is no different. To that, you know, this is very, <laughs> this is also very different. But um, the the idea of needing to uh, be nimble and find new creative ways around those obstacles, i.e. not being able to, you know, in, in most, many places get in physical proximity with the people we're trying to um, organize. And um, so that's the, and, and the second I would say is that, you know, the need for people to have clear roles in, in, in movement building and activism, the, you know, we know we we see time and time again, pre-COVID, through COVID, that people's capacity to contribute time, energy, resources, skills is almost unlimited. And certainly, coming from a uh, from more of an NGO, INGO perspective, like that's that's clear to anyone who is a movement organizer, a grassroots organizer. That's the lifeblood. But for some of these bigger institutions and organizations who have often, you know, they often forget uh, the the role that people can play to help scale scale up a mission, and so that hasn't changed. That's only becoming more in focus, I think, for for many organizations nowadays. Great, thanks, Michael. So this was a question about um, women's involvement, um, specifically. Are there stories about how women are continuing to organize under COVID? both for ongoing socioeconomic issues as well as the COVID response. Would like to take a crack at that. Um, Catherine, any interesting stories from your local partners of women's led uh, organizing? Yeah, I think one story that comes up is one of our partners in Peru, um, one of which is a, a woman farmer led movement. Um, one of the first things they did when they when the lockdown happened, so Peru took a very 
intense approach and one was one of the earlier what countries to sort of lock down, close the borders um, from outside travelers as well as within the states. And um, so Femme Karinap is a movement that organizes um, many local bases of women farmers around Peru. And what they immediately did was sort of identified who were the elders and who were the single mothers that needed to sort of be um, protected and taken care of in this lockdown. And so they organized that they became part of family um, units so that they would be not isolated. Because one of the things that we have seen and we have heard from particularly our women rights partners are about domestic abuse happening at home. So the whole idea of safe space um, in the home area is not entirely true for a lot of women and a lot of girls. So that has been really, um, that has been something that's been highlighted by them. Great, thanks very much, uh, Catherine. It's a great example. And Nelson, you had mentioned earlier the, the Women's March in South Sudan um, focused on uh, gender-based violence, uh, rape. Did you wanna talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, um, and, and that's also like in, in part, um, also here in Kenya, um, they, they, they has, because of the lockdown, and I don't know how, the, how is it globally, but seen an increase in gender-based violence uh, um, stated by the lockdown, because uh, now uh, people are staying at home and all stuff like that. Um, in South Sudan, there was um, uh, a case of rape of a, of a, of a child um, and that led to the mobilization, the march, uh, the march against rape, and we had the women um, uh, go on the street. Um, they're still maintaining social distancing. They also had a lot of yellow masks that they were giving out. Um, but this this was a very significant thing. They delivered a, a letter to the Ministry of, of, of Gender. Uh, but also, as they are doing that mobilization. They also used it as a means to connect with the people by giving away the masks. Um, so this also created um, uh, more awareness to people who are on the street, uh, but also brought um, more uh, more agendas. Uh, I mean, uh, brought the agenda to the attention of the public. Um, and and this is a very clear example that like some of the um, uh, injustice, if the injustices, like uh, the fight against injustice doesn't have to wait because uh, this case of the rape, it, it came up uh, during COVID-19, the women immediately felt the need to uh, kind of march against, uh, uh, against that. And I think it created enough momentum and enough voice to bring justice to the family of the, of, of, of the, of the lady who, who was uh, violated. That's a really interesting um, example. And as you say, the fight against injustices doesn't need to wait, and clearly South Sudanese women didn't wait in this case. Um, so there is a question from the audience specifically for Raja, um, which is, how do journalists in Syria determine which sources are credible to know more about COVID-19? So maybe I want also to touch base on the woman uh, activism uh, regarding COVID-19 and also I will uh, get back on the journalism and also how they are, like the role that they are to, uh, taking during COVID-19. 
So I, I want to highlight the work that um, IMC Network and with uh, the Beast Circle, the Women Beast Circle that they are doing in, inside Syria, where like beginning of um, uh, COVID-19, around like mid-March, uh, they relaunched a campaign. It's called Speak It Out Loud, where like mainly it's focusing on like having uh, women and also men actually activists who are like focusing on making sure that women are uh, supported while they are on the front line of responding to COVID-19. And this is not only in, in uh, the, like the health sector or on, only in uh, like civil society sector, but also while they are taking care of that, uh, their family. And this is like especially an extra burden is coming on women while they are in IDP camp or they are in a refugee camp or refugee, they are refugee in general. And the role that women are taking in organizing in order to get the resources needed to be responsible about, to uh, like make sure that they are taking the responsibility about their family, but also their surrounding community. So the Women Beat Circle have been actually doing like different campaigns, smaller campaigns that to mm, take care of the elderly who are not able actually to leave their houses. But not only, we are not talking specifically financially, we, we are talking also about like psychosocial support, like being together, solidarity and coordination among women and among like the people that they need the support during COVID-19. So Women Be Circle have been playing a very important role and also monitoring the situation on domestic violence and also increasing the violence against women, Syrian women in Syria and also outside of Syria for the Syrian women has been like I'm Sheena Quark played a very, very important role during the last couple of months. So this is with the example of the women uh, activism that uh, has happened during is it is happening actually during COVID-19 with the journalists like the information has been a big challenge in Syria and not only in Syria but also like with Syrians like around the world you have the governments who are making sure that their own citizen they are taking care of if there's any like if they are stuck in one country and they need to go back to their country, like if we talk about like US or France or different country around the world, while in Syria, you don't have this body, which is actually could be responsible about their own people, the Syrian people. And this is where like the lack of information is an issue, but also like you are in a position as Syrian person, that you don't want to go to your home country, even though this is like where you feel like you want to go there because you are afraid from detention, you are afraid from different kind of human rights violation. And this is where like journalist has been like very important actor in highlighting the situation of Syrians in the different circumstances. And uh, it's, uh, not necessarily based on numbers and facts, it's based on human stories. And it has been a very important source of information for the last nine years. 
that what we are numbers, we are people. Every one of us has a story. When like there's bombing, the family who lost one of their family member or they have to run away in the middle of the night, they have a story. And the human story has been actually the weapons or they have been the sources of the Syrian journalists for the last nine years. And I think like it's really affecting us every time when we are seeing those numbers of COVID-19 like in all different places around the world. And you know, like in 2014, the UN stopped counting how many people were killed in Syria because of the military action. And we always like among us as Syrian activists, we ask ourselves, our governments around the world will stop counting the people who are dying from COVID-19 at some point or not. And this is, it's not to compare, it's to show that the tragedy that happened in Syria in the last nine years, it's happening in different way. And it's very important that like, it's not repeated around the world and also to learn. Like if we are able to learn from COVID-19, and to prepare ourselves globally on any other virus or epidemic in the future, this is very important because like protecting the future from what's happening now or in the past is very essential. And this is our global responsibility. Thanks very much, Raja. Um, so we have a question specifically for Alba. Um, which is, how are you planning to raise awareness on COVID-19 digitally in Caracas as the population is locked down and many have no electricity or internet? And the, the questioner noted that this could be applied to other places as well. So if you want to kick us off, Alba? Up, oh, just unmute yourself. I'm sorry, yes. Yes, very good question. Um, because uh, of course I am convinced this is a time to, to, to increase awareness. I, I, I'm convinced of, of that. And not only because we need, uh, I think that the awareness is not only because we need to, to protest. I think we need to engage people, which is the first phase to, to strengthen a movement. So when, of course, uh, that's, that's the way when we analyze the conflict and when we analyze the, 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 the structure of a movement of, of uh, social of, or, or civil society, we need to understand how, in which stage we are. And I think when COVID-19 arrived, as I said before, we were in a, in a position where we were out of the, uh, out of the street and then suddenly everyone, everyone kept inside. So right now, this pandemic is affecting everybody at the same time, uh, at the same level. I mean, every, there is no difference between us. Um, perhaps many people were really um, um, in, in, a, in a position uh, where they, they, were, they weren't really aware of where what we were uh, really um, fighting for. So um, how we do, do, how can we do that? I think, well, perhaps different actions. I, I could say we have been doing two things at the moment. 
that I could say can be very successful. For example, chat, uh, chat forum via WhatsApp, which are really very important because we are uh, connecting people for some specific uh, topics. Uh, it, is, it is an action that takes place uh, for 24 hours only. We connect people in a, in a chat room in, via WhatsApp with some specific speaker in some specific theme. And also, uh, um, we have, for example, we have had some trainers in about uh, peace building also in chat rooms uh, uh, of, of this uh, type. But for example, uh, we can, uh, I can say also, uh, if it's possible, I can tell this quickly. Uh, in, a, in a very special place, in a shanty area close in Caracas, uh, where is a, is a really complex uh, area because of crime bans and, and a lot of scarcities there. People is now thinking how to connect them and they, they design a specific action like a call uh, cinema roof, which is, <laughs> which is really uh, uh, amazing because they, they create a way to connect people around the, the houses in the top of the roof of one houses and they, they make a projection of the, of the cine and people can watch, um, more specifically the children around can watch the, the, the movie from their own houses and their own windows, which is really incredible. And, this is a way to make awareness around the, the movement. These people is, is making awareness around there. This is a people where, this is an area where polarization is really, really hard. And these people is working hard to connect and to, to re-identify by themselves. I think these kind of actions are, are the actions we needed at this moment to connect people again and to, to gain strength uh, uh, with our movement. That's an interesting example of how um, kind of creative use of arts has been used to connect people and uh, raise awareness during this time when there are uh, blackouts, um, you know, internet shutdowns and the like. So that's a really interesting example. Um, I mean, I'm wondering from, from Nelson or Michael, from your perspective, this perennial question of the digital divide. And on the one hand, there are these creative new forms of digital activism. On the other hand, of course, um, not everyone has access uh, to digital platforms and media. And so how do you think about organizing in a way that won't exacerbate the digital divide and create kind of marginalization, isolation, at a time when more people are going to digital spaces. So the simple form of that question is, what constitutes kind of effective digital organizing at this stage? Go ahead, Nelson. Yes, uh, that's a very important question. And it has like also like it has twofold. Um, one of the prior to the prior to the pandemic, one of the questions that people have been trying to form globally is the question of does access to digital technology constitute, is it a human right? Is it, is it an essential right that people need? 
Um, and most of the time it has been dismissed as like, no, it is not because um, people have alternatives um, and even people who don't have access to the internet can still go to school, can still access healthcare, can still access government information. Now with the pandemic, we've seen a lot of the things have been digitized. So what that implies is um, in a very literal sense, people, when people talk about like um, e-education, as an alternative to education right now, when people talk about like access the internet to, um, to get information from the government and most of the information is moving online, increasingly we see that access to basic rights is um, linked to access to digital technologies right now. Um, and, that is, and that is bringing a very key question that needs policymakers and people who formulate policy and also structures to view the access to digital technology as a basic right that should be extended to people since majority of what the, the, the services that people need right now is being accessed online. The second bit of this is on the question of, um, um, uh, like there's a lot of optimism that with, that, um, the, with, with digital technology, but that, that being said, we also see that um, some of the divides with the pandemic is also the, the rift is increasing, the gap between those who have access to digital technology in terms of their access to information and their access to the organizing and those, um, and those who don't. Like that, the, the, the pandemic is also proving that the, uh, the divide is increasing. Um, so what we, what we need to do at this stage in a lot of places we find ourselves um, unable to, the, the only solution would be to increase actually access um, um, right now. In other places, we have seen people trying to use traditional means like in South Sudan and in also other places, um, we have seen uh, people using microphone and bicycles to go around and create awareness um, to communities that are not connected to the grid or that are not connected to the digital technology. Uh, but you can only do um, so much uh, with that. Uh, for, so the bottom line for me is like we need to have a to have a different framework on addressing the digital divide, which is based on rights and also framing the questions of digital divide as a question of access to basic rights. Well, that's really interesting. I wonder if there is increased momentum to uh, advance policies around the human right to access the internet. If there's been more of a push for that during this time. But anyway, Michael, did you have some something uh, additional? Sure, I can just, I mean, first of all, yes, to digital as a, as a human right, as, you know, as essential as, and, and I think that becomes most pronounced, especially in, you know, we're seeing it, especially in refugee camps where, you know, people's needs for internet and digital connectivity is as high as their need for, you know, water, electricity, other fundamentals um, today. And we should consider it that, as Nelson said, from an organizing tactic, I have seen, some creativity bridging the divide and uh, specifically, you know, we can look at some of the mutual aid groups who started organizing online and collaborating and using shared spreadsheets and making lists of, uh, and, and using tools like Slack and whatnot in different parts of the world. Um, and then very quickly acknowledged, we're not reaching the most, many of the most vulnerable people, whether it's the elderly or anyone else are not on those platforms Therefore, let's go offline, 
let's those let's use the people who have digital access as a bridge to those who don't have digital access or are ready to, or the same digital access or even the same tools, even if they are those people maybe have some digital, but not the same digital, right? And they're not accessing the same tools. So, you know, someone's grandparents who aren't on Slack, do we go and post, put flyers out? Do we individually, you know, safely walk the neighborhood with our masks and put flyers in the right places or on buildings or um, saying, if you need help, you know, here's how you contact, here's the phone number, here's the place you can leave a, a paper message or leave a, a all kinds of creative ways, you know, put a colored, a certain color fabric outside your window um, or outside your door. And the, the network we're building, which may be organized online is then including, uh, including those without access in, in other ways, in non-digital ways. It's interesting. I can say from personal experience, I've seen more colored flyers in my neighborhood during this period than any other time that I've been living in DC. Yes. So interesting example of how the kind of went offline really, really quickly. So here's um, another uh, very interesting question from the audience, um, which is when it comes to resources and access to rights, how do we apply a feminist lens to organizing and mobilization? Catherine, that might have your name written on it, at least in part. I mean, I can share um, from a funder's perspective um, that um, it is a time to support feminisms as it is a time to support all, all types of social justices um, in this moment. Um, when it comes to taking a feminist lens, and we see this a lot with our partners, it's, it's around taking into account the, the communities that are usually neglected um, by the governments, um, which can be from um, women to LGBTI to trans communities, um, and making sure that they're also being uh, reached out to. And I think this also touch upon the question around awareness, because we have seen that the government doesn't necessarily uh, prioritize reaching out to remote areas or to communities that are systematically have been oppressed. And so I think that has been really important to support movements who have been prioritizing reaching out. And as many folks have already shared examples, being creative to sort of um, communicate with them and making sure not only that the information is reaching out to them, but it's the accurate information that is reaching out to them in different, in the, in the languages that they speak, which is another component so um, yeah, so I think it's very important to take that, those, that feminist lens when it comes to grant making, as well as um, supporting the different realities that feminist groups are, are, are trying to build in their long-term strategy. Great, thanks Catherine. Um, there is a, uh, a very tactically focused question um, that we have from the audience, which is, is there a place for massive civil protest, uh, such as empty chair demonstrations, caravans and the like in this moment? So mass public uh, or mass civil protest um, that adheres to social distancing guidelines. Anyone have a particularly good uh, example of that? 
I mean, it brings to mind for me the uh, example that I voted in the beginning. Up, oh, go ahead, Raja. There was a delay, so go ahead. Yeah, so I want to give a couple of examples, and also I want to touch on the feminist lens, actually. So the first one that in Lebanon, I mean, not necessarily, like usually I don't give examples from outside of Syria, but like it was like a, an important movement in Lebanon because it has actually stopped because of COVID-19, but restarted again for the economic reason and also because of corruption, Etc. So it has been like a, a very important and uh, not necessarily taking the social distancing into um, consideration while uh, it's taking place, the uh, mass movement, but it has been a very important one and also it's affecting the region, uh, the whole region because the economic situation because of COVID-19 and also before COVID-19 has hit very hard the region. But also an example in Syria actually, and also like in the region, using uh, cars to do some kind of, sometimes celebration has been like a good example instead of like you do parade, instead of the parade, you are doing like car parade, and also the scouts for different celebration inside Syria has been taking like mm, uh, some social distancing between them. So it's not exactly mass movement, but it's also like really responding to COVID-19 in a different way of people uh, power. And um, it's very important why we are thinking that. Will COVID-19 take long period of time what is the adaptation that like people will be taking in their daily life and also in their like movement and movement this is like to show anger to show demand for change to show like celebration this is all will feed into each other and this is an important angle to look at it. Regarding the feminist lens with mobilization, it's very, very important that to talk about like the gender gap in, uh, in technology access, in access to technology. And especially because we are talking about COVID-19 as transferring or transform, there's transformation with our mobilization tools to online tools in many, many of the cases, it's very essential to really help in uh, closing this gap or like at least decreasing the gap with having the access to technology, the gender gap in access to technology. And this is with, from like funder perspective, but also from organizing perspective, we should know that this is, will take longer period of time that to make sure that like women are have the same have the same access as male when it comes to technology. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Raja, for raising that point. So we've only got about 15 minutes left. And what I'd like to do is combine um, another question with the audience with um, a question that we discussed together as a panel that we'd end this conversation with. So um, the question uh, that uh, an audience member raised is, 
Considering the global demobilization due to COVID-19, what will happen in the post-pandemic scenario without the previous momentum? And I'll link that to the question that I wanted each of you to answer to, um, to close out today's discussion, which is how do you understand um, in your work the future uh, of people power, both um, after the COVID pandemic and into the future? So why don't we start with uh, Nelson and we'll go kind of in the order that we began. Oh, Nelson, you just need to unmute yourself. Yes, um, um, yes regarding the, 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 the question of like um, post uh, demobilization and then post COVID-19, um, I think it's, there is part of it that we kind of know, um, and there is a bit that is still unknown uh, because right now uncertainty is all over the world. Um, even economies, economists, uh, developed countries, everyone is not sure about, I think the, one of the um, challenges with this pandemic is that like there's, there are a lot of unknowns um, and even people who are experts have proven to be not so. Um, so what might that mean? There is a lot of, um, there is a lot of uh, uh, things that will change the post pandemic. There are wins on this. Um, of course, a lot of governments have been exposed um, um, and people's trust in governments have reduced to a great extent. That means uh, this post-pandemic, more people will be questioning authority and people will demand accountability on a higher level than, than used to. So a lot of questions of like, uh, is the healthcare system okay? If it is okay, to which extent do we have deserve in this area? Do we have, so people will become, uh, will be asking, uh, will be asking those questions on a, on a kind of a deeper level. In terms of uh, some of the losses that we might see, um, uh, definitely post the pandemic, we are, already, we are already seeing this, especially in the regions where I work at, um, a lot of our youth activists, a lot of the people who used to be, used to have uh, a side economic activity, as well as also mobilizing people, they, are, they have also been impacted, their lives have been impacted. Um, so that means people will try to find ways of earning a living, ways of maintaining their lives, um, and that will impact uh, the, the general focus. That's something that I mentioned earlier on, you have a lot of competing attentions in your head. Um, it will make it very hard for you to mobilize. So I think this will also have impact on, uh, on people mobilizing, especially youth, volunteers, um, and groups who are on, on the lower tier of the economy. They will definitely, um, mobilizing people together will be a bit harder due to the economic impact and the various impacts in the, on a societal level. Great, thanks very much, uh, Nelson. Raja, what is the future of people power? So I would like to talk about the present of the people power and making sure that we are pushing the Syrian people, the Syrian movement are pushing towards the change that we have been calling for since nine years in Syria. We want to have a political transition based on a peace agreement that could be done virtually if the actors, the Syrian actors, 
the regional actors and international actors agree that this is the right thing to be done now. And it is the right thing to be done actually five years ago, even like nine years ago. Peace agreement, which is lead Syria to a new phase of uh, a country which is based on human rights, women's rights, rule of laws, where a, re a real accountability is done for people who have been actually committed human rights atrocities, even war crimes and the crimes against humanity. This is essential and Syria could be an example of a country where we can sign a peace agreement virtually. This is, we shouldn't be calling all the time for a ceasefire. There shouldn't be actually in the beginning government or different actor bombing their own people in order to achieve like their own interests. Actually, it's our right to be secure and st stable as people. It is our right. We shouldn't be calling for ceasefire. It is actually the case where we are calling for ceasefire. And it's dangerous to talk about after COVID-19 it is during COVID-19, it, it should have happened before, and then we would be better prepared for COVID-19, actually, if we have more like people, not 12 million people in Syria, almost half of the society either displaced internally or outside of the country. Doctors who have killed by bombing or under torture in prisons or have been displaced internally or to outside, they could have held Syrian people inside Syria at the moment. And this is why during COVID-19, people, Syrian people are calling for making sure that sustainable peace is achieved through a peace agreement based on 2254. Thank you, Raja. That's a um, poignant um, remark that it is possible to sign a peace deal virtually um, in Syria. Um, amazing to think that that could be possible during this time. So Alba, what in your view is the future of people power? Well, I think to say the future is something, is a huge responsibility. But I must say my, my wish in this, in this situation is, well, I, I, I hope that the social movement must be stronger than now. Uh, because for me, this time is has been a time to, to look inside of us as a human being, also, uh, of course, but I think also as a, as a social movement uh, to, to, uh, to analyze how has been done the things the last time, how ca can we st strengthen the, the situation, and also um, take into account how the, the deficiencies has been show to all the people without any differences. So for me, this is very important and I insist on this because it's time to, to, to connect more people. And something which is really, for us, uh, really crucial is how to connect people from grassroots uh, to, 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 uh, to, the, to this situation because there are uh, deeper problems who came out 
and perhaps were blind for many people, but now, now are exposed to everyone. So I think uh, the pandemic was kind of a storm for us as an activist to move us and think about and think, I think, out of the box and explore new possibilities. I think we perhaps, in, from my point of view uh, as a Venezuelan, most of the time we were thinking only in, in, a, in, a, in a one channel uh, of possibility for, for protesting. This is a, a way to open, to, be, uh, to have a wider view of this situation to look inside as a, some, somebody asked me if he, before, how, could do, how can we do if we don't have electricity, if we don't have internet connection, how can we do that now, this? How can we go forward on this? So I think it's, it's a time to think about and to go deeper in this. Thank you, Maria. No, thank you, Alba, um, for raising the, you know, the important point of um, how the pandemic has actually forced activists and movements to think outside the box in many ways. Um, so in the five minutes that remain, um, Catherine, what in your view is the future of people power? Yeah, thanks for that great question. Um, we already see before COVID-19 that there have already been multiple pathways towards systemic change because of people power. And as many have said, um, the movements now are learning different creative ways to strategize and build people power in different environments. So um, I don't think people power is going away. Um, we've heard that famous quote from Arundhati Roy around this moment, moment being a portal between one world and the next. And I think that's a real, uh, uh, that's been a real great way to sort of express what a lot of activists have said here about this transition moment that we're hopefully entering into a better a uh, new reality. We've witnessed many movements around uh, the world taking this moment to vocalize key demands that are highlighting the failures of the systems to provide general well-being. That includes the need for food sovereignty, health support, and also economic security that is based more on solidarity and not profit or capital accumulation. Um, so I think for us or for funders, we need to continue to see what ways we can release control and, um, and to really support social movements and people power um, at this moment and beyond this moment. And I think it's, um, it, you know, I think it's, it's something that it's, it's hard to do, but I think this moment is calling us for being more accountable to that. Right, thanks very much, Catherine. Michael, what in your view is the future of people power? Um, without Sounding naive, I, I think it's bright. Our, our issues are challenging, but the future of people power, I think, is, is bright. Um, I was inspired by some words of Rebecca Solnit, who was writing long before this about how activism and organizing leads to more organizing and activism. And so what I think is happening right now is that we are um, strengthening our political muscles. I think mutual aid is a political act. We're strengthening our civic muscles. And that to me gives me hope because for all the reasons we've just been discussing, like as, uh, coming out of this, this means we have, as more people have realized that we need to take issues and community support and helping one another and, and tackling the issues that matter in our lives into our own hands increasingly. That's not to say there aren't other pathways that we need involved, but as more people get activated and organized, 
that is not something that I think will immediately dissipate. And so that gives me hope. All right, thanks so much, uh, Michael. So we're, we're ending on a, on a somewhat optimistic note, but I, what I heard um, you know, many of you saying, um, drawing on the Anarati Roy portal metaphor and Rebecca Solnit's idea of um, activism and organizing leading to more activism and or organizing that at the same time that the pandemic is obviously um, creating so much harm and destruction around the world, it also potentially is a transformative moment uh, for movements um, and those who are connecting kind of the issues that have been emerging and made so blatantly obvious in the context uh, of the pandemic and linking that to some of the more uh, structural and, and systemic uh, issues. And, you know, in the metaphor of strengthening our social organizing muscles. Um, that's certainly a hope um, for what comes of this pandemic and also that we're able to globally strengthen our, our peacemaking muscles um, in light of the COVID pandemic. So we're at the very end of our time here and mainly I want to thank a really remarkable group of, of panelists, Nelson, uh, Kawaje, Alba, uh, Raja Altali, Alba, Roy, Catherine Zavala, Michael Silverman, thank you all for your um, very thoughtful um, and very, very helpful remarks. And thanks, of course, to the USIP um, AV and comms team, and especially to Miranda Rivers and Nick Zaremba, who have been helping and teeing up the questions from the audience uh, throughout today's conversation. So um, I want to thank everyone for joining us and till the next time. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.